Welcome to episode 19 of Murders, Mysteries, and More. I'm your host, Rudy Uribe Jr. Now, every podcast, we feature short stories from undiscovered authors. If you have a short story you'd like to submit, send it to Murders, Mysteries, and More at gmail.com. Today's episode is sponsored by SeeMeWord.com. You like short stories. That puts you in an exclusive group of listeners who enjoy reading, which means you probably enjoy word games. That's why we're telling you about SeeMeWord.com. It's a daily word game that challenges your ability to think like others. Every day you're given a word and you have to come up with five other words that come to mind. For example, if the word of the day is board, B-O-A-R-D, you might say surf for surfboard, skate for skateboard, walk for boardwalk, and so on. The following day, you'll find out if you matched others in the game, and you'll be awarded points. That's it. SeeMeWord.com is basically word association meets family feud. SeeMeWord.com is fun, fast, and free. No login or password is required. Try it today. That's S-I-M-I-W-O-R-D.com. This week's tale is the submission from Tyler Hale. Tyler and I met in a creative writing class at Pierce College in Los Angeles, California. Tyler likes to write thrillers, and that's what we have today. A man who needs a little me time finds himself in the wilderness of Alaska. He stumbles upon a bear and something else quite unexpected. After the reading, I will conduct a brief interview with Tyler, so stick around. Here is The Bunker by Tyler Hale. Now, where did I put the seasoning? The man rummaged through his backpack. It was during such times he wished he'd better organize his gear whenever he camped out. Back home in his regular life, the wife often chastised his sloppiness and unwillingness to improve his lifestyle. That was in Juneau, not the wilderness. Freedom was here. What am I going to do, he thought. Write food on this pocket of the pack? Not that he didn't appreciate the suggestion, but the man felt cooped up back in his one-story house with three kids. It was once every summer when he took a weekend off in the remote island, amongst many just for himself. July was his favorite month of the year in Alaska because of the light sky, as clear and bright as California. It would stay that way until around 10.30. Though he brought a flashlight with him as a precaution, there was hardly any need for it. If he could, the man would stay in the uncharted frontier, satisfying his hunger with berries, canned foods, and fish. Friends called him stoic. Family said the man was caring with no inclinations to show his compassion as if it was up his sleeve. He heeded those opinions, no bother. A grunt, woof, broke his thoughts. Okay, I won't forget you, Frank, said the hunter. He spoke to the wild Arctic fox standing at attention towards him. Frank followed the man whenever he frequented this particular part of the woodland island. Was he a kindred spirit? No. The man understood the petite predator hung around him for the scraps of salmon he caught and gutted from the river. Nevertheless, he enjoyed his company. The first time they met, he caught the animal scourging through his backpack for what he thought would be an easy meal. The fox froze up with no signs of fear. It reminded him of an old army buddy. Frank Morrison Jr., 
who he spotted for in sniping missions back in Korea. It was there he named him as such. The fox and man have known each other for three summers. The skeleton of his meal laid on the log nearby, so the man stood up to get it, sneaking a glance to make sure Frank didn't go for the meat grilling on the skillet. More likely, the fox wouldn't approach the sizzling food over the fire, but one time he did manage to steal one of the man's baseball caps when he wasn't looking. His hand grabbed the tail end of the carcass and tossed it to Frank. Like his dog back home with a chew toy, the fox gnawed to savor every piece of meat. Freeloader, <laughs> joked the man. But a rustle in the bushes broke the serenity, and the man darted his head to the source like a deer. Frank lowered his head in the direction of the disturbance and snarled. A low grumble emitted from the green. His heart began to race, and a dreading thought came to mind, one he didn't wish to think. A brown bear waltzed out into the camp and stood still to sniff the air. The magnificent mammal continued to trudge towards the man and his fire. Shit, he thought. This bear must be hungry. Man may have established himself the apex predator in civilization, but in nature, the bear reigned as the alpha. Normally, the beasts kept their distance from the occupiers out of disinterest or ignorance, but if they perchance came too close, park officials recommended using self-defense. But he had no gun on him. He was a fisherman, not a hunter, and wearing a bright red wool jacket did not alleviate any of the man's concerns. The man stood out like a wine stain on a white carpet. Shoot, he thought in quick abrasion. Under great duress, the man's mind clouded with fear, guilt, and anxiety. His first instinct was to crouch with his hands covering the back of his neck. Perhaps the bear would lose interest and walk off. Now, it's too much of a risk. His hands remained at his sides, but then he felt a cold metal touch his right hand. Bear mace. Maybe the shock of the animal blinded him to the savior on his person. The man shot his gaze down his jeans and eyed the bear spray canister clipped on the side. Oh, thank God. Of all the things he was grateful for of his wife, it was her insistence he keep defensive mace within reach should he encounter a bear. He inched towards it until the tips of his fingers could feel the clip, and he gradually unhooked it. Bear lumbered closer than ten feet away, but the spray could reach twenty. He breathed a single time and jerked the canister in front of him, pressing the button. White foam sprayed as an old fire extinguisher would and stuck onto the face of the predator. The ferocious roars sent a shiver up the man's spine, and the bear pawed his own bestial face with a frantic fervor. It started rolling around on its back and, in a hectic frenzy, onto the fire pit as the embers flicked onto Frank. The stout fox dashed into the wilderness. At this moment, the man did not think, but with the instinct of his ancestors, sprinted off into the forest, uncaring of anything he might run into. The faded light from the dust gave his eyes enough clarity. There was an acclivity in the direction he was running, but the footing was easy enough to climb with the boots. As he had a compass on his watch, he was confident he would find this side again should he return. But the man suddenly felt nothing below his foot and fell down into what felt like a chute. The man began to feel a strange euphoria. Perhaps it was the adrenal glands kicking in. He hit a floor. It took him a moment to gather his senses. Everything was dark except for the roof he came tumbling from. 
The window to the outside left, illuminance in its position, a square safe zone from the unknown. Looks like I'll use my flashlight after all. The man dove into his pocket to get the small metal torch. To both his dismay and relief, the light shone a continuing colorless corridor. If there's no way to go up, there must be a way out down the line. Hope I can make it back. Hold on, Elizabeth. If God's good, I'll be seeing the kids again soon. We'll take a road trip for lost time. Maybe a hike with Liam. He has to learn what I know once he's on his own. It took him five minutes to find something to explain where he was. The man found a gray metal door with no knob. To its right was a panel with two buttons. What the heck? Right? He pushed both buttons. Nothing happened. No big deal for him since the door had a small opening. Time to do it the old-fashioned way. With one great pull it opened. In the rush of his excitement to see what's on the other side, he neglected to read the lettering overhead. It was embedded at the top in black mechanic writing. Biohazard. Authorized personnel only. Since the only source of light the man equipped himself with was his flashlight, he could only point his beam to whatever he wanted to see. The first thing it caught was a desk with empty beakers and a rusted sink. The faucet looking like a rusted dragon with its odd nozzle. His beam moved to the right. A glass jar stood on a shelf with a pig fetus inside. The man cringed and looked away, only to see a metallic cage littered with the skeletons of rats. He shifted the light toward what looked like a large steel container with a green petri dish. A yellowish-green aura brightened as the light reflected off the strange, gelatinous substance. The mind is a curious thing with its many mysteries of cognition and reasoning with sometimes unknown motivations. In this instance, the man couldn't for the life of him understand why he felt compelled to reach in to pick up the dish but he was a slave to curiosity. To his fatal error, he was uneducated in the manner of science, both in theory and practice. As the top lid began to slide off the dish, he began to regret his ignorance. With a plop on the metal floor, the substance splashed upon his hand. A searing burn followed, and the man made a dash out of the laboratory and returned to the corridor. He continued down the tunnel, Thoughts creeped into his mind about the critters burrowing in this facility, as he so thought it was. He may still have had his mace canister on hand, but there was nothing else to protect him. He prayed not to meet any inhabitants. The hand still felt scorched, and more troublesome thoughts crept into his mind. There was no telling how long he trekked down the tunnel, but the man came across a room on his left. There was no door. In it, Scantily built bunk beds aligned the wall with a group of lockers on the adjacent side. An empty gun rack was situated in the middle. Words were etched in the wood. Property of U.S. Army. Tax dollars at work, he thought. It all fits. This bunker was one of many spread out throughout the territory of Alaska during the war in response to fears of a Japanese offensive. As far as he knew... They made it as far as the Aleutian Islands. It surprised him they didn't keep it operational in case of the Reds. He could not wish for statehood any sooner. The man noticed another offshoot route leading out the corner. With caution, he ventured forward. In a bigger room, an 88-millimeter gun pointed to a great hole in the roof. The barrel was damaged and blackened. 
What the heck? He was about to climb the gun until the terrible thought returned to his mind. What if he was infected? For all he knew, he carried the bubonic plague. The scope and scale he could not fathom if he were to screw up again. Maybe he had a short time to live anyway. It was here the man made the solemn decision to remain the rest of his days on this island. He made the climb. He thought of his family. I'm sorry. Welcome back to the podcast. We're here with Tyler Hale. Tyler, you and I met at Pierce College in a creative writing class. Are you are you still taking classes? What are you doing? Well, right now I'm working for the uh, newspaper, uh, which is called The Roundup. And uh, they've already ran with two of my stories. And this week I'll be attending a volleyball game. And it'll be my first sports story. So I'm a little psyched for that. Sounds great. So let's get to your story. How did you come up with this idea? Well, um, I think it stems from some stuff that happened to me in my early childhood. Uh, one of the things was that I actually uh, was in the classroom, and um, there was this man who used to live among grizzly bears for 13 summers, actually, Timothy Treadwell. He is the subject of a documentary called Grizzly Man, which is I think one of the best ones ever made. And he once went to my classroom when I was in elementary school. He told us his stories about living in the wild with grizzly bears. Tragically, uh, you know, tragically he, uh, he eventually perished by one of the grizzly bears. It's detailed in the documentary how he and his girlfriend were, uh, were camping out. And by the end of the season, uh, some, uh, some bear just uh, went up and um, devoured them. And so I took inspiration from that. And the second inspiration was from um, a World War II first-person shooter game that I used to play called Return to Castle Wolfenstein, which involves uh, a, secret, a secret agent from the U.S. infiltrating um, German outposts or secret facilities, and they would use these really bizarre experiments in, in, these, in these facilities. And I took inspiration from that. And do you, do you camp? Not as much as I used to. We, uh, back then, we used to go, because my dad's in the military, we had permission, to, and he was in the reserve at the time. We would go to Point and Dew and go camping out on the beach. And across the channel, there would be a bunch of sea lions right there that would they would all be beached out on the front end. We would be staying there overnight. Occasionally, my grandparents would stay nearby the motel. But it was just a nice opportunity to, you know, go out and just um, go in a, like, a nice, secure area. How'd you come up with Alaska for your setting? I travel to Alaska a lot. It's one of my favorite vacation spots. Oh. I like going to um, Alaska for fishing, mostly. And to me, Alaska is the last frontier of the United States. It's it's the largest state, uh, and even if you were to fit inside the actual continental United States, uh, it would barely fit. And to me, that's something that's always fascinated me about Alaska and its, its history around it, because I, I grew up reading Jack London's called the wild and I'm currently reading some short stories and to me it's a front it's a frontier that continues to fascinate me 
That sounds great. So let, let me get to the story. I had a couple of questions because in this story, you don't really give your protagonist a name. You call him the man. You refer to his wife as the wife. Later, you mention her name, Elizabeth, and you mention his son's name. But uh, was there a reason behind that? I think I took inspiration from Cormac McCarthy, the author. He wrote The Road, and in it, he, his, his main characters were just called the man and the boy. And I think my intention was sort of like how Hemingway uh, did with some of his characters. He wanted, I wanted like some of my characters to be identified, uh, like all the readers to sort of be identified, uh, be identifying with the man. It could be anybody. It could, be, it doesn't have to be a specific person. It could, it could be uh, somebody that anybody can relate to. And, and then it, when I first read the story, I thought of him as the man as being a bit selfish and self-centered. You know, he needed his me time. He needed to get away from the wife and, and the three kids. Uh, it sounded like he did this almost every year. But then at the end, uh, he makes the ultimate sacrifice. And, and my question is, was it an altruistic move on his part? Or did he not want to go back to his regular life? It was an altruistic move on his part because I think uh, in the story I sort of indicated that uh, hopefully he will be able to come back. I think my purpose for setting him up all that time was just he was a guy who was kind of a little frustrated with the personal life because anybody, if you know anybody, if you know anybody, they have their own problems with their family or anything like that, and sometimes they just need time to get away from it. And being in Alaska, I, I can imagine. I can imagine a lot of people will go through something like that because up there in Alaska, it's a little bit lonely. It's sparsely part. It's it's sparsely populated compared to other parts of the United States. And from what I've been told, that there is a there is a sort of a sad uh, suicide rate in the in Alaska. And I think my intention was for the man to sort of get away from uh, from civilization, just have some me time just to relax, not just stay away from his family. Gotcha. Because uh, if anybody knows anybody, uh, everybody has been there. Yeah. Yeah. No, great point. Anything else you want to add to this conversation? Well, I can say that I am working on some stuff right now. Uh, I'm going back to a book that I was intending to write, and hopefully I'll get you involved with the, with the editing process just to see how, if I can get good feedback on it. And, um, I am working on a story, which will be uh, which will be along lines of murders and mysteries. One of them is about kidnapping case, and I intend to sort of set that during a time where, in like early in the early two thousands, there was sort of media craze about uh, kids being kidnapped and all that stuff. Even though rates were kind of low compared to like nineties and stuff, but when um, when there were a bunch of high profile cases in California, and then there was this. Um, girl in Utah named Elizabeth Smart that became a high profile case after 9-11 happens and I'm taking some inspiration from that well it sounds great well I'm looking forward to uh, other stories that you've come up with um, please send them to me I'm glad you and I have stayed in touch and keep oh, writing yeah, yeah keep writing alright I'll talk to you later okay? alright thank you Tyler the first thing I want to do is apologize for my froggy throat uh, our household came down with COVID-19. My wife has it. My son has it. And I do not. Yet I've got 
a temperature, I've got body aches and pains, I've got a cough, and I've got congestion, and I'm the one, I'm doing this in air quotes now, who is not sick. So I will tell you, the family's just fine. Instead of being in isolation, I think we're in hibernation. A lot of naps happening during the day. And I figured it was a perfect time to go ahead and get a a podcast done. So I want to thank Tyler Hale for submitting the bunker and for talking with us afterwards. Look, oftentimes life is more challenging than the stories we write, as you can see. So stay positive, adopt an attitude of gratitude, and smile. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Rudy Uridi, Jr.